So I think the starting point with multiple point of view is just to decide why you're doing it. Is it just in service of the plot because you want to reveal certain bits of information at certain times or is it because you want to canvas different issues? Because there's no doubt that having multiple voices gives you scope to explore a much broader range of societal issues and especially with choosing characters of different ages. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today is a craft of writing episode and my guest on the convo couch is Cassie Hamer. Cassie is an Australian author, a bestseller with her debut novel After the Party that came out a few years ago, followed on closely by The End of Cuthbert Close, and her recent release, The Truth About Faking It, is the book we're going to be talking about today in terms of craft. It's a multiple viewpoint novel, and I was really interested when I read it, apart from the fact that I absolutely loved it, Loved the whole concept of the story, the generational aspect where there's three women from the same family dealing with a particular crisis, but also dealing with crises of their own in their own individual worlds. And I loved the way that Cassie captured the voice of each of these characters so beautifully. And I also love the way that she tied the stories together, but also portrayed them as three different threads. So I was really keen to talk to Cassie about writing in multiple viewpoints and, of course, her writing process and writing a women's fiction novel. As I said, this is the third of Cassie's releases. It was out a couple of months ago. I'm recording this on June 29, 2022. So it's been out for a couple of months now. And I highly recommend if you love Anything by authors like Leanne Moriarty, Marion Keyes, all those contemporary women's fiction stories that have a feel-good element but also have a serious theme running through them and quite serious issues that they're dealing with, but sometimes in a kind of lighthearted way. This is a fantastic book, as are Cassie's other books, and I highly recommend you grabbing them. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy this chat with Cassie. She was very generous with her sharing her wisdom and talking about a process that is sometimes hard to actually pin down as a writer. We sometimes, people ask us questions about how did you create this character or how do you do your plotting? Some of it is just a mystical process, not in a weird way, but because so many things come from our subconscious and sometimes things just happen on the page without us realising it. So I really appreciated the fact that Cassie really put herself under the microscope to some extent here and really thought hard about the answers to these questions. And I think you'll find it a really useful episode, particularly if you are writing or intend to write a multiple point of view novel. And also for anybody who loves reading and just is interested in what happens behind the scenes. So grab a cuppa, join Cassie Hamer and I on the Convo Couch for this craft of writing episode on writing multiple viewpoints. So, Cassie, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks, Pam. It's so lovely to be here. I'm a regular listener and it's just nice to be part of your stable. It's great to have you here and a guest host as well with your chat with Megan Albany recently. Exactly. Yeah, she was fantastic. She was so funny and I did love her book and nice to get the chance to pick her brains about it. Always good to talk books, isn't it? As I've already told you that I have read your recent book, The Truth About Faking It, loved it, which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, obviously to chat about the book itself. It's a fairly new release, but I'm also really interested in talking to you about the craft aspects of 
creating the characters and digging into this whole multiple point of view structure that you have going on with the book. But first of all, could you tell everyone what the book is about? Sure. The truth about faking it is a family drama with lots of humour and intrigue and a real focus on the relationships between the three generations of women who are the main protagonists in the story. And it's also about a mysterious death that causes massive ructions in the lives of three women from the same family. So there's Natasha, who's a 48-year-old current affairs presenter, very high profile, very controlled emotionally. We also have her mother, Ellen, who's 69, and she's quite out there and quite an outrageous character. And the third main character is Georgie, who's 22, and she works as a reality TV producer on a show that's very much like The Bachelor. Yes, it did have very Bachelor vibes, I thought, which was, it was really interesting contrast between the three women's lives. They're all from the one family, of course, so they have you know, lots in, in common, but then they've all got these completely different situations in lives. And then we have this exciting incident that throws the spanner in the works for them all. It, it did strike me as a perfect example. Now, this is a term that I do love, but other people don't love it as women's fiction. And you've got very strong, three very strong women. You've got lots in there about relationships and the dramas, the things happening in their lives. Great plot, page turning. Where did the inspiration for the story come from for you? The inspiration came from lots of different places, but I think the biggest ideas came from my experiences of working in the media when I was in my 20s and I worked as a TV reporter, firstly in country New South Wales and then worked my way up into eventually landing a role with Channel 7 where I was getting pretty regular shifts as an on-air reporter for the 6pm news. And that was an incredibly formative experience for me. My takeaways from working in the media were that it can be incredibly fun and exciting and there's nothing to rival the adrenaline of a newsroom when big news breaks and you've got people running everywhere and phones going off and you're madly writing and working to these inflexible deadlines. It's highly addictive and when I was working at Channel 7 in Sydney, some big stories happened. September 11 happened. The Bali bombings happened, the Asian tsunami happened, and these were huge events. So it was a really newsy time to be there. And Sydney is undoubtedly the pinnacle of media, I think, in Australia. Yeah. Biggest city, biggest resources, that kind of thing. So it was an amazing job. And I was, it was the job of my dreams, but it came to a very sudden end because my boss called me in one day to talk about my future and he sat me down and he said, look, I don't think you have a future as being an on-air reporter because I don't think that you have the X factor. And I was devastated and I didn't understand what the X factor meant, but it felt very much to me like it was a gendered turn. Because there was a huge mismatch, I think, in the way that the female and the male journalists were treated in the newsroom. The women had to pay very careful attention to their appearance. I got sent to hair and makeup for a consultation about how to soften my look to appear on camera because I did sometimes wear my hair quite tightly back in a ponytail because I didn't want flying hair to be a distraction from what I was saying. I thought what I was saying was more important. Yeah, I thought it was more important than how I looked, but apparently not. Women always wore makeup. It was an expectation that you wore makeup on the job. Very few of the male reporters would. They might whack on a bit of foundation, but it would be a 10-minute sort of thing. No one cared too much about the male reporters' suits. They could have worn the same thing for two years straight as Carl Stefanovic did on the Today Show, and no one would notice. The same couldn't be said of the women. So... I did feel it was a pretty sexist environment and a blokey one. There wasn't a single woman in a management role. And I left the industry. I just decided that I didn't want my future to be at the whim of a man 
who couldn't really properly explain to me what I needed to improve. And I thought there was a lot of unfairness in the industry, a lot of competition. So I left. And I think that was an incredibly scarring experience in some ways and something that still I think about a lot and think about whether I should have tried harder to stay in the industry and fight back just about that against that one man's opinion. But the beautiful thing about anger and difficult things that happen in your life is that they make excellent fuel for fiction. And in a way, I think if I hadn't let the media, maybe I wouldn't be a writer and maybe I wouldn't have the opportunity to channel those thoughts and feelings about the treatment of women into the story. And I think this story at its heart is about women being true to themselves and speaking up. That's the bottom line. That's the takeaway message. And so very long story short, that's what has mainly inspired the book. It's really interesting. We could go down that rabbit hole and spend hours talking about that. Yes. Do that. But so Natasha's character in particular, so Natasha is the news reader in the story. She has come from directly from your own experience. This mm. is your third book. Is this a book that you always thought you would write at some point or how did that come about that this ended up being your third book though it's, it's, it's very informed by your own experience? Yes, I definitely knew I would always write about the media. And as you pointed out, Natasha works in an environment not dissimilar to the one that I worked in. And Georgie also works in the media, but in sort of new media because she's in a reality industry, but it has its own ethical issues, as I think mm. we're probably all aware, that what constitutes reality on television bears very little resemblance to how most of us define the word reality. So yeah, I always knew I was going to write a media book. I think it was always in me. Uh, the first, my first two books were, I think, more about motherhood because that was what I was feeling quite intensely at that time. My kids were a little bit younger and I was grappling with those big identity questions over the transformation from independent person to totally dependent person because suddenly I had three little human beings relying on me and I used the fiction as a way to sort through a lot of that. But this book is the book of my heart in some ways because it is informed by experiences that happened 20 years ago and so I've had a lot of time to think and process. And obviously the things I see happening in the media today, I think things have slightly improved in relation to the treatment of women, but there's still a long way to go. And especially in the area of diversity on screen, like we just don't see enough mm. different faces. We don't see wrinkly older women. We don't see different skin types. We don't see enough Indigenous faces. So it's not just the representation of women. It is other marginalised groups as well. For sure. So the inciting incident in this book, Cass, is the death, and it's not really a spoiler, I think it's on the back of the book and it happens very early. It's the death of Natasha's father, who is her mother, Ellen, is one of the other point of view characters. So we have Ellen, Georgie, the, the granddaughter, and then Natasha, who is Ellen's daughter. And David, who is Ellen's kind of ex-husband, but not officially ex yet, has a, an, a boating accident and Ellen has police arrive at the door and tell her, I'm sorry, but he's dead. How did you decide on that inciting incident to set the story off? I think a death is a great catalyst for change. And in this case, I wanted there to be an element of intrigue around what had actually happened to David. And I wanted that question over his death to be the question that would pull the reader through the entire story. And it would also be the uniting force between the three characters mm. because obviously they all loved him dearly, but it was a really useful vehicle to also show their differences. So Ellen's grief is tinged with a lot of anger because she's really cross with David for taking off on the boat with his brother and leaving her behind. Natasha's grief is very tightly controlled. She doesn't feel able to let go of her emotions. She's adored her dad. Her dad was a foreign correspondent. She's always held him um, up on a pedestal. 
And for Georgie, it's more straightforward. She was, David is the grandfather who she had those normal grandparent type feelings towards. He was a, a fatherly, gentle, interesting presence in her life. So I think the different ways in which the women grieve says a lot about them and was also a way of introducing some questions about David himself. Was he the ratbag husband? Was he the doting father? Was he the gentle grandfather? They're all questions that keep the reader going, I think, through the story. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was really good to have that. It was the, the centre of the story, but then the ramifications of his death and how it affected each of them. So was it always going to be a triple point of view story, Cass? Yes. Yeah. It was definitely always going to be multiple um, points of view. And I wanted to have three generations. And so that, and I knew that, that I wanted them to be adults. So in a way that forces you into choosing specific age groups that sort of mm. dictates what ages you can choose. So it definitely was always going to be that. I love writing about mothers and daughters. It's such an interesting multifaceted relationship. In my own relationship with my mum, I love her dearly and when I was growing up, we were very close. There's tensions in any good relationship, in any very loving relationship. There's also times when you completely dislike them. Mm -hmm. And the thing about a mother is that she's always a bit of the voice of conscience or the voice in the back of your head telling you what you should do. And sometimes that advice is useful and necessary, but most of the times it's unwelcome and unwarranted. So there's just tremendous capacity for conflict and tension in those relationships. And I think that's obviously the foundation of fiction. So let's have a quick chat about each of the, the three women. I loved that each of them had such a distinctive voice and through the voice and the way they told their section of the story, even though it is third person, we just get such an insight into their characters as a result of the way that the, the story is written and, and the, the type of language and everything that they use. Mm. Can you walk us through how you went about developing each of the characters? Yes. Okay. Okay. There's quite a few different parts to this. So I might go through each one, one by one. So that might help other people who are trying to embark mm. on a similar type of thing. So I think the starting point with multiple point of view is just to decide why you're doing it. Is it just in service of the plot because you want to reveal certain bits of information at certain times or is it because you want to canvas different issues? Because there's no doubt that having multiple voices gives you scope to explore a much broader range of societal issues and especially with choosing characters of different ages. So that was definitely underpinning my decision. I did want to explore things like the invisibility of aging, which is done through Ellen. I did want to explore the sandwich generation, Natasha, who's dealing both with a slightly demanding parent, but also a child who's still somewhat dependent. And Natasha's getting to that tricky menopausal age where the world does start to see you a little differently and can be a bit of a precarious time career-wise. And then obviously with Georgie, it's lovely to explore a younger person who is experiencing falling in love for the first time. So you can't do that with just one single character. Mm. So that's why it's really useful in fiction to have a couple of different viewpoints if that is your aim. The next thing I think you have to think about is how are you going to structure the book? So is it going to be alternating points of view evenly? So go from character A to character B to character C, then back to character A, B and C. Are you going to focus in a little more on one character and not so much of the other two? And the decision that I made was that I would devote each chapter to one point of view. So I think it, it, it would be a mistake to do what we call head hopping, 
in chapters. So I was very conscious that with each chapter, you would only hear from one character and the next chapter would be from a different character. And what was really important, I think, was to signal to the reader which character they were going to be hearing from. So in that first paragraph, I try to signal very clearly whose head we're in. And you can do that in a few different ways, but naming them obviously is really helpful. Edie zeroed in on XYZ, we're in Edie's um, point of view. The thing with structure is that you then need to carry it through the whole book and be quite consistent. So you can't have three charts, three, or you can't have alternating points of view throughout the book. And then suddenly towards the end, you just decide to devote five chapters to one character. That's definitely something to think about. It also affects timing. So are you proceeding with a linear structure so that you're not jumping around in time? Or if you are going to do that, how are you going to signal that maybe through chapter headings? So there really is a lot to think about even before you get to voice. I would say voice is something that you can develop as you draft and as you layer up the character. But it is worth thinking in your planning about how you are going to distinguish each one. And I think for me, it was easier because I had chosen people of different generations. And we know that older people speak differently to middle-aged people and they speak differently to young people. So their age in this case is directly relevant. And I'll just to give an example, swearing. How would a 69-year-old curse versus a 48-year-old versus a 22-year-old? Yeah. So like Ellen, for instance, uses the word blasted, that blasted thing. Natasha might use the word bloody, bloody idiot or something like that. Georgie might be more likely to go a little further and be more explicit and drop some F-words. Yeah. That is what young people do. So you can start to filter in their age through those sorts of things. But I think also voice has to be deeply connected to the emotional wound that the character is experiencing or the flaw that they're trying to overcome. So for Ellen, her character flaw is ego. So for each character, I had a, a focus word for Ellen. So is that something you work out in advance, Cass, before you start writing? No, this draft? is probably, yeah, this is probably something that more comes after. I can show you, actually, this is my page. I don't think you can read all the words, but it's just a handwritten summary of each character and I've written down what their problem is, what their wounding event is, what the effect of it is and what she must learn. Ellen, I wrote down that her internal problem was ego and that she can't forgive and that she's quite angry and that's the wounding event is that her husband left her, she doesn't know exactly why. The effects of that are a lack of financial security she wants to show David what he's missing out on. She tends to catastrophize. And what she must learn is um, how to gain true self-esteem and how to yeah. defeat her ego. So the way that feeds into her voice is that Helen, Ellen is both outraged and outrageous. So she's going to talk in quite an exaggerated fashion. Everything's going to be a little bit overblown. And Natasha, in a way, is her opposite because her key word is responsibility, perfectionism, and control. Mm. She is really tightly wound. She's a news presenter. So the way she speaks is quite formal and almost scripted. And so that's probably the other thing to think about is what are the frames of reference for each character. So for Natasha, she works in TV. Her metaphor language, therefore, is going to be quite related to television and she's going to relate personal experiences back to her career experiences. To give like a better example, maybe have a character who loves art 
And so a lot of the way they describe scenery is going to be in a very artistic, visual way. You might have a character who loves music and so their metaphor language is going to be much more related to beat and rhythm and sound and those sorts of things. So assigning those sorts of personality traits and having a really clear idea of your character and their main flaw directly influences then, I think, the words on the page. It all has to match up. And so Georgie's, her key word was cynic. And so she has a slightly snarky voice. She's got that. She reminded me a lot of my 26-year-old daughter, actually. <laughs> yeah, writing young people is is quite easy because they have v- v- such distinctive vernacular and they're real trend words and phrases using the word random. Kids use word, yeah. word random all the time. Oh, no, I'm like, guilty. Oh, yeah. It's like this. It's like that. It's like something else. Even a, a really popular phrase at the moment is to dr- describe something as having a vibe or having big energy, big something energy. Right. So I think I do listen to a lot of podcasts and try to listen to a range of age groups and you, it's quite easy to... That's a great idea actually, isn't it? To listen to different voices and then to be picking yeah. up all those different distinctive speech patterns, yeah. Definitely. Even with the character of Natasha in my mind was the newsreader Georgie Gardner, who I don't yeah. think everyone yep. across Australia would know her. But I think it does help to have in your mind a public figure, a frame of reference, like not always, but for me, that is really helpful. And with Ellen, I envisaged like a Patsy character from Absolutely Fabulous. I love Patsy. Oh, she, she's just so... <laughs> She's so outrageous and I dialed that down just a little bit because Patsy is quite out there and I did want Ellen to still be believable, believable understandable yeah. and relatable. Yeah, but I do think there is that old adage that a character is one third you, the author, one third someone, you know, someone you, and one third your imagination and I generally think that's true. Yeah, yeah. And so you sound like you're someone who is a bit of a cross between a plotter and a pants. Yeah. right? Yes. I do have some key events worked out and I did know what the ending of this book was going to be, but it did go through some pretty substantial changes and I was getting a bit confused. So what I did was I made this really long document over three pages and what this is that it's a beat sheet okay it's a beat sheet for each individual character so the top line is Ellen then there's Natasha and then there's Georgie because when you're writing multiple points of view you do have to have three complete character arcs or each character complete character arc. So this one, I took the beats from that book, Save the Cat. Okay. And it's quite prescriptive. It has the first beat is the opening image and the theme stated. The second beat is the catalyst. The third beat is the debate. Then you break into act two and the B story. So it's quite detailed. Yeah. Because I was getting a little bit lost and a bit stuck in the weeds and wanted to make sure that the story was working, I did find that writing it out in a grid just helped me to check off whether I was hitting the story beats. Yeah, yeah. Do you recommend it if you're having a bit of trouble trying to figure out where the story may Did you do that before you started writing or was that maybe after your first draft? How did that work? Again, that was after the first draft. I find it very hard to do detailed outlines before I write because I do discover so much about the character on the page and so it's just almost impossible for me to forecast what I'm going to discover. So I think the general narrative arc was there from the beginning but you ne- you just need so much more than that. To bring it to a polished standard, you have to drill so much further down than just having that general idea. So 
in a way, I think the the debate over plotters and pants is almost not irrelevant, but it doesn't really matter what you do because at some point, even if you planned it all out, you are going to have to go back after your first draft and check out where it's working and where it's not working. And maybe you do that before you write. Maybe you do it after you after you write. At some point, you are still going to have to do it. So as, as writers, we all arrive at the same destination. We just get there in different ways. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. So when you're writing your multiple points of view, were you writing, like I know some writers take one character, for example, and write their story all the way through, do the second one, then go back and interweave them? Or are you someone who does a scene from one character, scene from the next character? How did that work for you? Yeah, I do it in a linear fashion according to the chronology of the book. So I'll write one character, their scene, because whatever happens in their scene is going to have ripple effects on the next character in the next scene. So just to give a small example, in the early chapters of the book, Natasha talks about sending a text message to her daughter Georgie. And the way I begin the next scene, from Georgie's point of view, is her referring back to that text message. So even though they're separate characters, you always want to have echoes of what has happened in the previous action. Otherwise, I think it can lack a bit of coherence. So you're going to have scenes where all three characters aren't together. You're probably going to have a lot of those sorts of scenes, but they still need to be harking back to whatever action has happened in previous scenes. So for that reason, I find it easier to switch between points of view as I'm writing. And also occasionally there are some days where I'm just not feeling a particular scene and I might jump ahead to one I really want to write, but I would never sit down for three weeks and just write one character because I think what one character does just has so much bearing on what the other characters do. And did so when you're alternating scenes like that, do you ever have difficulty going, okay, I'm in Ellen's head, I'm seeing everything from her point of view, using her language, now I've got to switch to Natasha or Georgie. Did you ever have any issues with that or did you have any techniques for how to do that switch? So I generally would work on one chapter per day and so I have that sort of physical time separation. Okay, today... I'm working on a chapter from Ellen's point of view. If I don't quite get it finished, then obviously I will continue that to the second day. But I generally try to demarcate and at least have a night away, have that time overnight to then get into a different character's head. And I usually go for a walk in the morning before I sit down to write. And often I will pre-plan the scene for the day and try and get myself into the head of the character in that way. Sometimes I write down some notes before I write a chapter. I do some handwritten notes about what the character's goal for that scene is, what the conflict might be and how the scene might end. So I do a little bit of pre-planning of scene and chapter writing to get myself into that mood. And maybe if I'm in Georgie's head and I'm writing about some producer tactics used on her reality show, I might have listened to a podcast from a contestant on a reality okay. show just to, I, I use podcasts a lot to get me in the mood for something. And I use podcast writing podcasts a lot like yours to inspire me to write and to reassure me that other writers face the same challenges that I do, but sometimes I'll use the podcast to directly influence the material or, or the character mm. I'm writing. That's a great idea. I love that. What about, you mentioned the your grid and the beat sheet and everything. Is that how you keep track of the timeline? Because timelines are something that's always yeah. a headache for me. I yeah. start writing and then I think, oh, I'll go back and fix this later. But of course, when you've got the whole manuscript and you've got to then try and work that timeline out, it can be an absolute nightmare, can't it? Nightmare. So timelines are really hard. And I think I did try with this manuscript to get it right from the start, but a manuscript takes many drafts and one of those drafts. So with each draft, you might look at a slightly different thing. And there's no doubt that one particular draft, I think has to be just a timeline read. And what I do, it's pretty basic, but I just write out 
every single chapter from one to 60. And I literally write the date and the time that scene is taking place. And therefore I can see, oh yeah, Georgie had that scene a week ago. So the next scene we've got Natasha a week forward and what season are we now in? Because a book might unfold over the course of several months. So you want to reflect how the weather is changing, for example. So yeah, timelines are a nightmare, but that's the process I mm-hmm. need to go with that. Yeah, I know in my last manuscript, I just got to the point where I thought I actually went through and wrote at the top of each chapter yeah. what day it was, okay. you know, of the week. I went back and, <clears throat> sorry, took all that out later, but yeah. to actually have it on the page in the chapter was really helpful. I think it's essential. It's funny because as a reader, those things don't matter to me at all. I rarely take notice of what day of the week it is or anything, but apparently there are readers out there who are excellent at following timelines to the letter and therefore it's something sadly that I have to actually bother to get right. Fair enough. We're all doing so to get that email going, hang on, he did that last week, not three weeks exactly. ago, whatever. Yeah. It sort of blows <laughs> my mind how closely certain readers read a text and sometimes it makes me feel a bit inferior because I don't read as closely for that or I'm not reading for that. But there are readers out there who do and we have to cater for them too. That's right. Keeps us on our toes. Yeah. What about the issue of backstory, Cass? How do you handle that? Because I know there are certain parts of the story for each character where there are snippets of backstory filtered through. Some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. And backstory can be quite an issue for some of us. Mm. So how do you handle that whole concept? I think about some of the advice from writing teachers that I've been given. I attended a workshop a few years ago from Natasha Lester, who was very firm that there should be no backstory in the first few chapters of a book because it takes readers out of that dreamlike status. So I really do try as much as possible to avoid any backstory in those early moments, because you just want to pull the reader into what's happening there and now. Another fantastic writing teacher, Tony Jordan, said that the way to use backstory is as a pacing mechanism. And at the time, I didn't quite understand what she meant, but now I can see that sometimes we get to the saggy middle and that can be a time to start fleshing out your characters and giving them more depth and more layers. And the first act should be, you know, snappy and fast. But at some point, that can become a little relentless for the reader. So you might actually want to slow things down. Otherwise, you're going to have your plot done in 50,000 words, but you want to deliver the reader 100,000 words. So introducing it towards the second act, later second act, I think is probably the bot to start bringing it in. And in this book in particular, I wanted it not to be, especially Natasha's backstory, I didn't want it all to be dumped at once because I wanted the reader to still be asking questions about exactly what had happened to Mm -hmm. her in her earlier life. So I think the third tip with backstory is that if you want to have that as a source of tension and intrigue is to drip feed it. And so you'll give the reader a little bit of the backstory and then you'll, in the next reference, you'll flesh that out a little bit more and give them a little more insight and context and detail about what happened. And then eventually you'll do the full reveal to the end of the book so that the reader has the full context of where the character's coming from and their motivations. And that's the payoff, I think, for the reader. Yeah. And it is that thing that as the further we get into the story, the more we're getting to know the character. So it feels natural that we then find out more about their past, doesn't it? Yes. I think you want the reader to care first. So it's like in any relationship, when you meet a person for the first time, you don't want them to dump their entire back history on you because you're thinking, I don't even know this person. I don't even know if I like spending time in their company and they've just come and told me their life story and I I just really don't care. So 
I think the thing is that the old showing and not telling is really important in those early chapters because it's through the showing that you are going to entice readers to care about your character. Mm. On that whole showing and telling thing, Cass, how do you work out the balance between like you are in quite a deep point of view with your writing with these characters when we're in Ellen's chapter where we're really inhabiting her head, her skin, all that sort of stuff. But of course, we need to have also that outside narrator telling in a sense what happens to keep moving the plot forward. Do you find that comes fairly naturally to you or is that something that you balance up in revision? What's your attitude to that? The way I look at it is that it's like a camera that is sometimes zooming in and zooming out. And I think about something Marion Keyes said about that at the start of the chapter, you need to hold the reader's hand a little bit and just orient them to the scene. So in a film analogy, I see that as the camera having quite a wide shot. And that's where we are setting scene. And that's where you're going to have a more authorial voice or a a narrator voice. But then as the scene progresses, you really do want to pull focus and zero in on what's going on inside of the character's head. So usually as the scene progresses, I get deeper into their internal or interior thought. With Ellen, it was easy to write because she was quite an outrageous character with very strong opinions. With the character Natasha, was much more difficult because she is an emotionally repressed character and so it's hard to reflect quiet or controlled emotion in a really interesting way and so the feedback I got on that first draft from my publisher was that she didn't really understand what Natasha was thinking and that was spot on. I hadn't put much internal or interior thought in for Natasha and that then became a big focus in the rewrite in that yes Natasha might have this controlled emotional exterior but that doesn't mean that she still doesn't have a thought process ticking 24-7 because you can be often it's the shy introverted types that have the deepest and most busy thoughts going on. It's a bit like the duck swimming on the pond, everything looks serene on top, but underneath the feet are paddling furiously. It's not something I get right first go all the time, and some characters are definitely easier to access in terms of their internal thoughts than other characters. Yeah, I love that analogy of the camera, the zooming in and zooming out, and and then it's all about just getting that balance, is it, I I guess, in those redrafts? It's interesting. A lot of people these days in first person, and so you don't necessarily get that camera zoom in, zoom out effect because you're 100% in that character's viewpoint all the time. For me, it's almost just a personal preference and I like the authorial voice and I like that it just gives me a little more flexibility and a chance to demonstrate a little bit of a slightly different writing style. Definitely worked well in faking it. (laughs) So what about your writing process itself, Cassie? Do you spend um, a long time on a first draft, a a short time and then more on the revision? How does all that side of things work for you? Look, I think each book is different. And the problem with writing is that while you knew how to write one book, you never know quite how to write the next book. So you never quite know before you begin how it's going to come out. But a standard writing day for me is that I sit down between school hours and in first draft mode, I would try to get to 1,500 to 2,000 words. I find around 1,700 words, I really start. That's funny, isn't it? Because I'm exactly the same. I'll have this great idea in my head, I'm going to write 2,000 words plus, and it's, I'll get almost to the 1,700 thing. Oh, I just can't do any more. Yeah. uh, I I think, obviously... Probably everyone has a different threshold Mm. limit, but I just find pretty consistently that it's at that point that I start to feel really tired Mm. and it's just not 
coming. If you do that every day, you're going to have a first draft pretty quickly, but inevitably life gets in the way. Yeah. Realistically, out of every five-day week, I probably get three proper writing days. So much as I'd love to just churn out the most super quick first draft, it always takes maybe five or six months, maybe four months if I'm really got the hammer down. And then ideally, I like to give it a couple of read-throughs before I submit to a publisher. In the past, I've actually given it to an external editor to have a look at and give me feedback before I submit it even to the publisher just because I want that external feedback from someone who doesn't know me and isn't Mm. a friend and just going to say nice things. Yeah, I generally do to get a little bit of external input before I submit. And as a sort of now multi-published author who works to contract, do you still have with each book that sense of nervousness when you are doing that submission to the publisher? Oh, completely. (laughs) But what I have learned, and I think Rachel Johns actually said this, maybe, I hope it was. I think she said something like that every book is fixable because there is this idea that, oh God, what if I submit a book that's beyond repair? And that deep in your gut is the big fear, I suppose, that the publisher just comes back and says, just not publishable, nothing we can do. But I generally think if you're a writer with a bit of experience, the book is not going to be as crap as what you think it is and that editors are amazing and that pretty much all books are salvageable. It's just that some books are going to take a tremendous amount of work to fix. And other books will barely take any work at all and you're not necessarily going to be the best judge of which book is the problematic ones. With my first book, there was a pretty substantial structural edit. With the second book, there was no structural edit at all. I just went straight to copy. With the third book, there was a big developmental edit. So that was doing lots of character layering work. So who knows with Mm. the next book? I just don't know. I'm not, writers aren't the best judge of their own work always. Do you enjoy that process working with the publisher and with the editors? Yes, I do. I always have that moment where I get an editorial report and I'm completely aghast and I just think, (laughs) I can't do this. This is terrible. They think it's rubbish. And I give myself one night to feel that way and to feel bad. And the next day I get into work mode and I think, no, it's not completely terrible. It's just a case of doing the work. And as long as I can apply the bum glue and sit at the desk, then I can achieve what they're asking me to achieve and that ultimately it's going to be a much better because that's what they want. They don't want to tear me down. We're just, we're all about working together to make the best book that we can. And so I just put aside that momentary devastation and get to work. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you straddle, I guess, the, what can sometimes be a conflict or a tension between the writing, the artistic side, the creative side of the writing, and then that writing for publication, which is very much business-based? Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, publishing is a very hard business to understand unless you are working inside of the publishing house. Like there's still so much I feel that I don't know what goes on behind those closed doors. And I've come to the conclusion that my job is just to write the best, most entertaining book that I can. In the back of my head, I always have Leanne Moriarty as the high bar of where I'm aiming. And she's incredibly commercially successful. So If I can replicate in some way the way she delivers entertainment, the way she delivers character, the way she delivers plot, then possibly I'm going to attract some kind of audience because clearly 
that fiction has a market. Conscious, if you was being really savvy about it, I would write crime fiction because <laughs> that, that is what sells really well and you have access then to a male audience, which with women's fiction, you know, sadly, I feel sorry for men. They don't read it and that's their problem. That's, that's wrong. Us. I don't feel sad about it. I just feel sorry for them that they don't get access to all this wonderful fiction. But yeah, if I was a really savvy and just writing to market, I would move into crime fiction. But at the end of the day, I think all of us have a unique and natural writing voice. And I would really have to wrangle my voice into something quite different. And that would take a huge amount of effort and work on my behalf because I'd be fighting natural energy yeah. all the time. Yeah. No, I think that's very good advice. I know that we, we're conscious, I'm conscious of time. We've got to wrap up, Cass, but what, what's next for you? What's next? More books. So I have submitted a manuscript to the publisher. It has a working title of Weekend at Bear Park, and it's about a mother's group who go on a weekend away and unbeknownst to one of the members who's a real prude, it's a clothes optional resort where people get around naked. And so no, we've got that. We've got the humour side, but then also something huge happens while they're on this weekend away. So bit of humour, bit of intrigue, bit of mystery. They're the elements that I love in books and they're always the elements I try to put into what I write. Yeah, you certainly did that beautifully in The Truth About Faking It. So it's been so good to get a little bit of insight into how you went about creating that. And so thank you very much for sharing all that with us. Good. I hope it didn't come across as a garbled mess to all those Absolutely people not. out there listening. I've always marvel at the wisdom that other writers are able to share. I doubt my own capacity to do that. <laughs> oh, you've done it beautifully, believe me. Cass is going to be joining me a little bit later for four curly questions for the Patreon supporters. I'll be back talking to Cass, but otherwise, Cass, thank you so much and have a great weekend. Thanks, Pam. Love your questions. Love your work. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.